Welcome to Whitechapel Church Online. You're currently listening to preaching from our Sunday services. We believe that when the preaching happens, that collectively we're hearing the Word of God, and that God's Word has the power to change who we are. We also believe that God can meet you right where you're at, and that He has a Word specifically for you. We hope that you enjoy today's sermon, and we would love to have you at an in-person service. Head over to whitechapelchurch.com to get more info. Enjoy the sermon, and be blessed. If you have a Bible this morning, if you'll turn with me over to the book of Luke chapter 10, we'll get to Luke chapter 10 here in, uh, in just a moment. Um, I promise, but we're continuing our series on spiritual DNA, and um, we've, we've been through a number of places over the past um, three weeks, so this is our fourth week as a part of this. We've talked about the power, His divine power that He has given to us, and what a divine, true divine power, a gift it is to us. We've talked about our identity and who we are in Jesus Christ and that we are to truly reflect the love that he has given to us. And last week we talked about not just holding on to that love and discovering our identity in Christ, but we talked about moving to the next place in our mission statement and moving from discovering Jesus to also sharing his love. And as a part of that, uh, I asked you to join us with the, the vision that God has given to us for this year in 2021 to share his love with at least a thousand people this year. Easy. That, I, I hope that by the time we get to summer, we've already surpassed that. I, it's been encouraging this week to hear some of you say, hey, God has already given me this name, and God has already given me this person, and I'm already beginning the process of sharing his love with these people. And that is amazing, but we don't want to just stop. We want to continue asking the Lord, who is it that you want us to share your love with? in every single day of our life. And then we want you to take the next step to grab one of these hearts. There's some at the welcome desk. They're on the tables out in the lobby. Um, there's, I think, some back by the sound booth. Uh, as you share his love with somebody, it's not, I believe, it's not just enough to share his love, but we want to go the next step, and we want to begin praying for that person. And so what we want you to do is grab one of these hearts and just jot that person's name down on a heart. You can drop it in one of the giving boxes. You can leave it in your seat. You can turn them in at the welcome desk. And we are going to actually pray over every single one of these by name. And we are going, we expect God to do a great work in every one of these people's lives. Now we know that the command that we've, or the, the direction that we've been given in the scripture is that sometimes we're planting, sometimes we're watering, and sometimes we have the privilege of seeing the harvest. Uh, wherever we're at and every one of these names that are turned in, we're just going to trust the Lord. And so I encourage you to join us on this journey that the Lord is, has led us on as a congregation and make sure that you are being intentional about sharing His love and then turning in these hearts. Also, don't forget to fill out a connection card. If you haven't filled out a connection card, I want to encourage you, uh, pick up one of these connection cards at the welcome desk at the, uh, in one of the chair pockets in front of you, and don't forget that there is a place for prayer requests on here, because we take prayer seriously at Whitechapel Church. 
And so make sure that you turn those in. In Luke chapter 10, uh, we'll get to there uh, here in just a minute. But in Luke chapter 10, um, we'll, be, we'll begin here in verse 30 in just a minute. As this actually begins, it's amazing to watch Jesus' journey up to Luke. And I love reading Luke. I like to think that I can identify a little bit with Luke, uh, because Luke really was the investigator. He wanted to know everything, and I'm a, I'm a little bit that way. Sometimes when we're just driving down the road, and um, you know something pops in my head from random space, and it just comes in and fills my head, I'll ask Melissa, hey, what is this, or do you, what do you know about this? And sometimes she's like, well, I don't know. And then she thinks that's the end of the, congregation, con- the conversation. And I say, why don't you get out your phone and Google it? And then just read it to me because I want to investigate. I want to know these things. And Luke is doing some investigation. And he's giving us some insight in Jesus' ministry here. Up until this point, Jesus has gathered his disciples. He's got the 12 that are working with him. In chapter 9, we see Jesus has just sent out the 72. And they're really beginning some work. And in doing this work that Jesus came to do, in preparing the way for his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his ascension, what we see in this is the spiritual religious leaders are beginning to take notice of Jesus' work. They're starting to get some words back that this man is really shaking things up. And so there's a little bit of extra um, attention being paid to Jesus. And that's really what's happening here in Luke chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 10. In verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, this is the question that is asked at the last part of that. This is one of the religious leaders, one of the experts on the law, not just the law of Moses, but also on these 400 and more things that have been added as clarifications, if you will, to the law. This religious expert comes to Jesus and he asks a question. This is the question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a good question, isn't it? That's a question that every single one of us ought to be asking. What must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? This religious teacher is not just coming asking the question, wanting an answer, but he is coming, we know, in hindsight looking backwards, to trick Jesus. He wants to try to trip Jesus up. He wants to be able to have some false charges to bring to Jesus, because if Jesus doesn't answer this question right, then he's going to be able to say, hey, this is the guy that is messing around with the law. This is the guy that is a false teacher. This is the guy that's gathering these disciples around him, and he is really messing up with the truth that we know. But he's asking a question that every single one of us ought to be asking. What do we have to do to inherit eternal life? And my friends, if you have not received an answer from the Lord with that question, My prayer for you today is that you hear the words of the Holy Spirit speak to the innermost core of your being and to the depths of your soul so that you would receive from the Lord the answer to this question, what you have to do to inherit eternal life. And in these few words that this expert is asking, eternity, eternity hangs in the balance. Now Jesus didn't answer the question. And I get a little frustrated when Jesus doesn't answer the question. Because in the same way, when I ask Melissa a question about something that I don't know the answer to, and she thinks the conversation is over, I say, well, Google it. Find it. We have all of the answers to the world in our hands, in our phones, in our devices. 
So all you got to do is pick it up and Google it. Jesus didn't answer the question. Jesus didn't Google it. Jesus didn't go back to the law and start to pull things out. You know what Jesus did? And this is what he did so often. He answered the question with a question. Now when I sat in Oklahoma City and a couple of our Bible professors, great, great men of God classes, I got so mad when they answered a question with a question. Because question marks don't follow question marks. Question marks should follow periods. Because when there's a question, a question demands an answer, right? And here, I'm truly asking a question, and they would give us a question back. Now, back then, we didn't have Google. We didn't have internets in our dorm. So there was nowhere for me to go find the answer. I had to go sit in the library and pull out some books and, and try to find the answer. So it wasn't that easy to do. And Jesus, answering the question with the question, stirred up a little bit of angst in this expert. Jesus said in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now I'm sure at this point, this lawyer, if you will, is really beginning to pop up his chest and he's beginning to boast about this because Jesus didn't answer the question about eternal life, but he did respond with a question about the law. And if there was anybody that knew the law, it was this lawyer or this expert on the law. And so here he says, as he boasts up his chest, I imagine, Luke doesn't record, record that, but as I, as I watch this play out in my mind, that's kind of what I see. Hey, I've got the answer to this. What is it that's written in the law? And the lawyer's saying, I know the law. He said in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus, in verse 28, gives him a little pat on the back, and he says, you have answered correctly. Good job. You get a 100 on the quiz. You've passed the test that you tried to test me with that I then turned around on you and I gave it back to you. This is what you have to do, Jesus said, to inherit eternal life. And as the the lawyer begins to boast and he begins to, to really feel proud about this answer that he's given, he does what lawyers so often do. He begins to dissect even his own statement. And he then begins to think in his mind, and we don't get this from Luke, but you can actually see it played out in the next conversation that Jesus is having with this lawyer or this expert of the law. The lawyer then begins to think, love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that must mean, in the lawyer's thinking, that must mean there's two different kinds of people. There are neighbors and there are non-neighbors. If, if Jesus said, boy, this is correct and this is the right way, and I have told him that there is, this is the answer to eternal life, and I've talked about the neighbors, then I need to go a little further in this, and I need the clarification of the answer here. Who is my actual neighbor? And that's exactly what the lawyer, the expert of the law, asked. In verse 30, if you would follow along with me here, or let me do 29 first. But as he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is 
my neighbor. And did you catch the word there that Luke said? He wanted to justify himself. He wanted some justification to the law, to the answer, to this eternal question that he had asked Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Now, what a good question. What a good question. Because if the law says we have to love our neighbor, then we better know who our neighbor is. Jesus said, this is eternity for you. This is how you have the privilege of being able to spend eternity at the throne of God. You better know your neighbor. In verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three, Jesus now speaking back to the lawyer, the expert of the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, four words, go and do likewise. I love this passage of Scripture. If you've ever sat in a Sunday school class, you've studied the Good Samaritan. And chances are, if you've never entered a church before today, you've heard people talk about the Good Samaritan. Because this is a passage that we go to often and we say, this is how we want to spur you on to good works. We don't want you to be like the priest. We don't want you to be like the Levite. We don't want you to be like any of these robbers. We just want you to be like this good Samaritan. Jesus is pointing out that there are really three different kinds of people in this parable that he is using to answer the couple questions that this lawyer asked him simply about how do you spend eternity in heaven. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying there are the robbers. There are these priests, the Levite. And then here's the good Samaritan. And you get to choose, Jesus is saying to the expert of the law. You get to choose who you are going to actually be like. And your choice in this actually actually is going to answer your first question all the way back in verse 26. How is it that I inherit eternal life? Do you want to be like one of the robbers? And the Jericho Road was often called the Road of Blood or the Bloody Way because there were, they say, some 12,000 or more robbers that were hanging out in the barren lands. And just the other side of these barren lands on the Jericho Road was a cliff so that if you tried to get away from these robbers, these opportunistic robbers, they would then push you off the side of the cliff just so that they could take your possessions. And so when Jesus is talking about this road, the lawyer actually knows exactly what's going on here. 
But Jesus is saying to this lawyer, you get to pick. Who is it that you want to be? I know you don't want to be like the robber because you've got this question that you want answered and you've got this scenario that you want actually spelled out in your life. Jesus is saying, I don't think that you want to be like the Samaritan because you want to be the expert of the law. You want to be able to be the one to hear from Jesus. Yes, that's the right answer. But Jesus is saying to, to, these, uh, to these experts of the law that are gathered around him, the choice is actually up to you. And they probably would identify more so with the Levite, with, with the priest, and step out of the way of the Samaritan. Because Samaritans were hated. Samaritans were the outcast. We know that. If you've, if you've ever sat through sermons or sat through Sunday school, or if you've ever read from the Scriptures, you know that the Samaritans were not the ones that you actually wanted to be around. So here's this Samaritan, this multiracial person, this half, um, half Assyrian, half Jewish person that is really an outcast, and the Jews didn't want to identify. They didn't want to be around the Samaritan. And so this expert of the law says, no, we are not going to this person. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it amazing that this is where Jesus went with this parable that he's actually sharing here? If we were to look back in Luke 9, I just, I just want to share this. You don't have to turn there. I just want to share this with you because this is actually interesting to me. As we go through everything that has happened to Jesus, he's gathered his 12 together. He sends the 12 out. He feeds the 5,000. Here Peter actually confesses to the Christ. We see the transfiguration actually take place. Jesus heals a boy with an evil spirit. The disciples begin arguing who is actually going to be the greatest. And then we get this just tucked in by Luke and the scripture. This is what it says in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Now, do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus sent someone ahead of him to go into a Samaritan village? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what does he do? He sends those on ahead into a Samaritan village. You can read over this, and you can, you can just see, oh, this is what's happening in Jesus' day-to-day life, and this is what those who've gathered around him have done. But Jesus knew. Jesus, being God in the flesh, knew that he was going to have this opportunity to share this parable about the Good Samaritan. But look how Jesus sets it up. He says here, they went on into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So not only did the Jews hate the Samaritans, but the Samaritans hated the Jews. But yet Jesus is telling a Jewish lawyer that if you want to spend eternity in heaven, you have to be like a good Samaritan. But here Jesus has got an illustration of something that actually happened to him. The Samaritans rejected the Jews. And so I imagine as Jesus is telling this parable about the Good Samaritan, those that were with Jesus, the twelve and more, were probably thinking, now wait just a minute, Jesus. You want us, Jews, to help this, or to, to be like this Samaritan 
who just rejected us. You don't know what the Samaritans did to us when we were on our way to Jerusalem and you sent us on ahead and you said, go get things ready. And yet the Samaritans rejected us because we were on the way to Jerusalem. And listen what the disciples said as soon as this happened. In verse 54, when the disciples, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Go, James and John, right? I mean, they are really drawing the line in the sands between the Jews and the Samaritans. They are really saying, God, we want those Samaritan people destroyed because we were doing your work and they stood in our way. Have you ever felt that about somebody around you? No, I'm I'm seriously asking. Have you ever felt that way about somebody around you? God, I am doing your work. I am in your will doing exactly what you told me to do, and they are standing in my way. Do you want me to call down your fire from heaven and take them out right here? What about somebody that you work with? What about that one annoying person every single day of your life that you wake up and you encounter and the thoughts in the front of your brain every day are, God, just give me the chance. Give give me a little bit of fire and I'll take care of them right here and right now and they are gone. Let me tell you, Jesus' disciples did it. That's what they thought. And we think that we're above Jesus' disciples. They were with him in the flesh they were right there when they, they, were, they, were, they were following after him when Jesus called them and they walked away from everything just because he captured them and yet they wanted to destroy the Samaritans. Fast forward a few verses and here Jesus is saying, I want you to be like the good Samaritan. And it all started with a question. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Is it that person that you want to call down fire from heaven and you just want to take them out right now because they're standing in the way of something that you think you need to do? You think, well, what does this have to do with our spiritual DNA? It's easy. The question was, what do we have to do to inherit eternal life? What do we have to do to inherit eternal life? Again, a question that every one of us ought to be asking. And Jesus said, if you want to inherit eternal life, If you want to spend eternity in the place that Jesus said in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be. That's where you want to go? Then Jesus said, I want you to be like the Good Samaritan. Don't talk about fire. Don't talk about eliminating this person. But I want you to be like the Samaritan. And I want you to find your neighbor in everyone. In everyone. Who's your neighbor? Who do you see? Who do you see that can answer this question for you? The amazing part, at the end of this even, when the question is given to Jesus, he didn't ask or he didn't come back and give a full answer to this. Whenever it comes back to Jesus, We close this passage in the 37th verse of Luke 10. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go 
and do likewise. Do you know what the core of your spiritual DNA is? That you have to uh, unwrap, that you have to get down into, and then you've got to mine that out because it is against the flesh. The core of your spiritual DNA is go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. In Jonah chapter 4, I love the story of Jonah because as I was growing up in the 70s and then in the early 80s, there was this group that you may have heard of called the Oak Ridge Boys. I wanted to be like the little curly-haired one that always sang on the far right-hand side. And they sang a song. I could still, Pastor Jordan would come play on the guitar. I'd sing Elvira to you because I knew Elvira front and back. (laughs) And then in the late 70s and the early 80s, somebody decided that that song wasn't spiritual enough. And so they wrote the song to Elvira called Go Jonah. And I could do those umbapa mau maus, even though I wanted to be like the little curly-haired guy that sang high over on the other end. But that song made me love the story of Jonah. And it made me really begin to, um, to identify a little bit with Jonah and see some of myself as, I, as I've grown up in Jonah. And I think that if we were to take the story of the Good Samaritan here, and we were to take this conversation between the lawyer and Jesus, it really kind of parallels with what's taking place in Jonah chapter 4. In the very beginning of Jonah chapter 4, this is what's recorded. But, Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Now, what was Jonah angry about? He didn't want Jonah to repent and turn from their wicked ways, And as they begun to do that, and as they began to get back into right relationship with God, it angered Jonah. It angered Jonah. Verse 2, it says, He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to foretell by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And this is what the Lord said. A question again. He didn't come, and he didn't comfort Jonah in this moment. Much like he did with the the lawyer, the expert of the law. Jesus gave another question, and this is what Jesus said. Is it right for you to be angry? Here's what I believe Jesus is saying to the lawyer, the expert of the law. And here's what I believe that God is saying to Jonah. Stop asking who your neighbor is. And Whitechapel Church, I want to say to you today, that I love being here with you. I thank God every day for the privilege of being your pastor. But I want to tell you that I believe where God is leading us as a congregation is getting us to the point to where every single one of us stop asking the clarifying question of who our neighbor is and we just start loving everybody that we encounter. 
For too long, for too long, we in the church, not, not just Whitechapel Church, but I mean the church as a whole, we have allowed the world to put us into all kinds of different categories. And we have bought in to this system that we see being played out where there's this group and there's this group and there's this group and there's this group. But if we get back to our roots as a congregation and as a movement, never at the core of who we are as a body of Christ was asking the question who our neighbor was. It was always, let's just go love our neighbor. And so I believe, as God's been stirring in my heart for two weeks now, what he is saying to us as a congregation is that Whitechapel Church is going to be a place of grace so that everyone, everyone who is alive becomes our neighbor. We're not going to be the expert of the law that stands and says to Jesus, well, how do we do this, and what do we do here, and what do you mean if this person comes, and what is this, and what is this, and what is this? We are going to look at that person as our neighbor, and we are going to be the Good Samaritan in South Daytona and the communities that are around us, because there are over 74,000 people who profess that they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we are going to be the ones that all always finds the opportunity to share his love with our neighbor. But you've got to know, you have to know who's my neighbor. Today, I believe you have to get to a place to where you have come to, uh, come to have an answer for this question. That you are going to stand up and say, yeah, they don't look like me. Yeah, they don't act like me. And yes, there are times possibly that I want to call down fire from heaven and eliminate them completely because they annoy me that much. But that person is my neighbor. John Piper, I, I, I love reading some of, some of John Piper's words. John Piper says, what grounds the way we think about neighbors is actually our identity. Did you catch what grounds the way that we think about our neighbors is actually our identity and not theirs? What matters first is who we are. What matters first is who we are. And you can't stand in this room on Sunday morning and sing, I am a child of God, and then go outside those doors get back in your car, and go back into your neighborhood and hate your neighbor. Because Whitechapel is a place of grace. And God, is, I believe wholeheartedly, God is going to send people here that don't look like us, they don't act like us, they don't live where we live, they don't smell like us, and they don't do the things that, they, that, do the things that we do. But let me tell you something. They are our neighbor. And we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to accept this responsibility of being a place of grace for our neighbors. There's a book that I uh, read a number of years ago. It's written by Carl George and Warren Bird. They're, they're actually church experts, whatever that church growth experts, whatever that means. I've never met a 
church expert that was worth what he was charging for the materials he wanted to sell you. But um, in, in this book, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty good book, and it makes you think about uh, a few different things. And one of the things that I really loved, and this analogy is always, has always stuck out with me here, he's talking about a church identifying its vision and its calling. And so as I began to, to sense that the Lord was calling us to be a place of grace, he brought back this, uh, he brought back this uh, analogy in this book. And so one of the things that he says here in this, I just want to read it to you, just two short paragraphs. Next comes, he's talking about church growth here. Next, he says, comes the no vacancy sign. Have you ever seen a no vacancy sign on, on a hotel? This is, this is what he goes on to say. Have you driven by a family-run motel and seen a neon light that read, sorry, no vacancy? Motel managers have a switch inside their office, which they activate when the bed level is full enough, not necessarily 100% full. In tight cash times, the switch is not touched until about 1 or 2 a.m. when every room is rented, including the one with a broken TV. In good times, if it's 8 or 9 p.m. and the proprietors are tired, they flip the switch and go to bed. Some churches have a similar system. And they activate the no vacancy indicator at the earliest opportunity possible. If the parking lot is full, if the sanctuary is full enough to just be uncomfortable if another person comes? Do you want to do anything about it? Or do you just want to enjoy it and leave the no vacancy sign is? And listen to this. He says, another somewhat comical way of visualizing this is to watch a fisherman throw back fish that he deems too large or too much work for his size of a skillet. He sets out with a notion about just how far that he is willing to go. So I think this morning, Whitechapel, the Lord is asking us, how far are we willing to go to love our neighbor? How far is too far? At what point do we decide we want to flip on the no vacancy sign? At what point do we say, like the lawyer, yeah, but Jesus, you've got to clarify this a little bit more. Who is it that's my neighbor? How far are you willing to go? How uncomfortable are you willing to be to share his love with the one that aggravates you completely? How far are you willing to go to fight to ensure that Whitechapel is truly a place of grace that loves all of our neighbors? Because the answer to that question is the same answer that the rich lawyer asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? How far are you willing to go? How far? Who? Where? Where do I draw the line? Where do I flip the switch of no vacancy? Because that, in that moment, limits the grace of God.
God is calling us deeper. Whitechapel, God is calling us further to advance his kingdom. But the only way, the only way that he will trust us with more is when we say to him wholeheartedly, unreservedly, God, send more neighbors. One heart is not enough. Two hearts is not enough. Ten neighbors is not enough. A hundred neighbors is not enough. I'm praying a thousand neighbors is not enough. Because God is calling us deeper and deeper and deeper. And my question for you, Whitechapel, is are you willing to be obedient to Him? This is your spiritual DNA. Jesus poured it out here in Luke chapter 10 to this expert of the law. And I believe that the Spirit is drawing each of you this morning deeper and deeper into this holy trust, this sacred trust that He has for you this morning. Who's your neighbor? Who is it that's your neighbor? Last week I shared this passage of Scripture with you. It's Ephesians 2.10. This week I'm sharing it from the English Standard Version. Paul, writing in the book of Ephesians, says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now view the story of the Good Samaritan through the lens of Paul's writings a number of years later. To do good works like the Good Samaritan, which God prepared in advance for you to do, that we should walk in them. Our flesh will always lead us to pick and choose who our neighbor is. Always. That's what the flesh does. That's what the rich lawyer was actually doing here. He was picking and choosing. He wanted to know how far he had to stoop. He wanted to know how far he had to get before he had to actually cross that line of being uncomfortable and loving his neighbor. He was drawing the line with Jesus and saying, there are neighbors and there are non-neighbors. But Jesus was saying, no, that is not the case. Everybody is your neighbor because he said, now go and do likewise. In just a minute. Our worship team is going to come back up, and we're going to sing a song. And during this song, the words that are actually written in this song are powerful for us as a congregation. And it says, all these pieces broken and scattered, in mercy gathered, mended and whole, empty-handed but not forsaken, I've been set free. You can't sing, I've been set free, and then go live a selfish life hoarding the grace of God. We have to go from this place today and make certain that we are over allowing God's grace to overflow out of us into every single 
person that we encounter. This is the work. This is you as the handiwork that God has prepared for you to do so that the grace that you experience where you've been set free and He has scattered all the pieces broken together in mercy, you have been set free. Now you should want that for your neighbor because the only way that that annoying person becomes unannoying so that you don't want to call fire down from heaven to eliminate them and take them out is when they experience the same grace and the same brokenness become unbroken, the same undone become healed, and the same scattered become restored. That is God's grace, and that is the work that God has for you. So listen, as we close here in just a minute, this song not just becomes a song that we close our service with, But this song becomes a commissioning for you to leave from here today to ensure, joining God on the journey, ensuring that Whitechapel is a place of grace and that everyone that is willing to come would come. The words go on to say this. You take our failure our weaknesses, you set your treasure in jars of clay. So take this heart, Lord. I will be your vessel, the world to see your life in me. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Would you stand with me? Father, we recognize this morning that sometimes in our life there just hasn't been a lot of going and doing likewise. And we know that there are times that we just haven't been faithful when you've called us to love our neighbor. So Lord, this morning I just pray that as we stand and we close our service today, As we sing this song, this would be a song that not only is a closing song, but it becomes a song that commissions us to go through those doors. Once was scattered, now has been brought in wholeness. Once was broken, who's experienced the wholeness in your blood. And I just pray that as we get to the end of this song and we, 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 we talk about you being reflected in us, that this would truly be what we grasp this morning as individuals and together as a congregation so that we go from here today truly, truly doing likewise. So Lord, in this moment, speak to us. In this moment, let your Holy Spirit guide us, direct us, Convict us and redeem us. In Jesus' name.